0: researcher on the topic of what's called positive psychology asks, why are we so easily distracted from our pursuit of long-term goals? What gets us off course? And here's the question that was posed. Why is it so hard to stay the course on our long-term projects, even when we are certain that the advantages of sticking to it will far outweigh the more immediate benefits of putting them off? Fair enough question, right? Her answer to that, two words, instant gratification. We're willing to forego a future benefit in order to obtain a less rewarding but more immediate benefit. There has been um, no generation quite like ours in terms of opportunity for instant gratification, for that sense of getting whatever we seem to want in the moment. With little more than a line of credit on a plastic card, we can order just about anything and have it delivered in days, if not in hours at this point. And, And that at least tempts us to be an impatient people, to to not invest time and discipline and energy and to expect things to happen quickly. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, one of the, the terms that's used throughout the New Testament that describes the Christian life is walk. It is something that is deliberate, that is paced that is over time that continues on. It's not instantaneous. It's not a sprint. The Christian life is not an easy race with a, a quick finish line in view. Jesus made this very clear in Luke chapter 9 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and Follow me. That is the exact opposite of instant gratification, but rather speaks of a deliberate walk with Christ. Acts 14, one of those places where Paul is conveying these messages to strengthen the church, and one of the things that he said in Acts chapter 14 to the believers was that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He was going to believers and encouraging them to persist to remain steadfast, to to continue to press on and not try to shortcut God's work in our lives as we so often want to do. That message by Paul, echoed by the words of Christ, bore out in Paul's own experience as we've been reading is that there are great trials to come. Follow Christ and, and we can anticipate that there will be times when we will be pleading with God for the strength to persist and to be steadfast. We know... And we are encouraged by the fact that our Savior never leaves us or forsakes us. He promises that to us. He is gentle. We are sheep. He is our great shepherd. He cares for us. To, to use the words of Jeremiah thirty-one three, he loves us with an everlasting love. And so Christ is walking with us. He is strengthening us. His love far out exceeds um, just words in that it is in action. It is in sacrifice. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The whole uh, discussion in Romans 8 about what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus was filled with a list from Paul of things that that we could see as potential obstacles of challenges that come across in life that, that make us question and wonder and feel alone. He speaks of tribulations and distresses and persecutions and dangers and things present, things to come. Paul listed those because he he was exhorting Christians to remind us that that there are difficulties. There are challenges that come about. The Christian walk is over hard terrain at times. and, And we need to be able to rest in our Savior, but we need to also persist. We need encouragement remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Turn to Acts chapter 20, and we're picking up in our study of the book of Acts. And Paul here continues to do the work of ministry. We're going to consider 16 verses this morning. Acts 20, verses 1 through 16, if you... Go on just through 17, which which is where he leaves from Ephesus to Jerusalem. If you take that that scope of that passage, which again, to us, I I know I sound like a broken record, but I think we read these things in 16, 17 verses, and we go, okay, so that's what, what, like a couple of months. This is about two years of time. This is a total of about 2,000 miles in travel that's encompassed in just this short stretch. It, Paul's trip goes from Ephesus and if you look there on the right side down in the lower part of Asia you see Ephesus in a square goes north to Troas that's about 250 miles in terms of a walk and then it's across the Aegean Sea over to the top corner which is Philippi and then it's about 400 miles all the way down to Corinth and as you see by the map it's up and it's back so this is This is not a short trip, this is a lot of distance that Paul is covering over a great span of time as he's traveling to these places. Nearly all of this was ground that Paul had covered already, places that he had evangelized where he had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he is now going back through them for the purpose of strengthening the body. To, to build back into them with encouragement and hope and to help them keep their eyes fixed on the prize, to, to keep focusing on what lies ahead in the glories of Christ and, and what stands before us as believers. And so he goes back to them to encourage them to stay the course. Don't grow weary. Don't lose hope. Continue to walk the walk of the Christian life. I'm going to pick up in Acts 20 and just going to read the first three verses to start with, and then we'll move our way through these, this opening section. But Acts 20, this is, you remember we left off in 19? There had been this sort of riot that had gone on in Ephesus. They had come to the, the theater in the city where they were trying to get the local authorities to to take Paul, to arrest Paul, to prosecute Paul, and essentially the town clerk dismisses it, and that's the end of of this uprising. So Acts 20 verse 1 follows that. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So there's the the first leg of this journey. He's in Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus, moves north to Troas, across the sea, over to Philippi, and then down to Corinth, and as it describes here, he spends about three months in Corinth. We're presuming this is the winter that, that he's spending it during that season when there's not going to be much sailing going on out on the sea, and so he is spending that time in Corinth. All during this time, all during this long period of time that's transpiring, we're, we're seeing that Paul is preaching and visiting and encouraging and speaking, and, and it'll also tell us in the next few verses that he's mentoring as well. He's got other colleagues who are long companions whom he is teaching along the way, but he's also writing. The thing that we sometimes forget is during this time, he's writing 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. When when he gets to Corinth and he writes to the church at Rome, he is writing from what is likely that stay in Corinth, that three-month period there. Uh, we also know that his visits to Corinth, we, we see the, the one here when it says he came to Greece and he spent the three months there, that would be Corinth, which would be down in Greece. But there also would appear to have been, if we go to 2 Corinthians, there would also appear to have been another visit. At some point, he left Ephesus and briefly went over to Corinth in light of the sin issues that were going on in the church and the, the division that was going on in the church at Corinth. And so um, there are visits interspersed here. There are other letters that we don't have. We have First and Second Corinthians, but there also seem to be letters that, that those books refer to that we don't have, another letter Uh, previous to 1 Corinthians, prior to, and then probably one between those letters, that he describes in 2 Corinthians as a severe letter, one that he had written. So he talks in 2 Corinthians about a a painful visit, one that was in the midst of their sin, and a severe letter that was sent. It was sent by Titus. And so along with all that's going on in the course of this travel, there is just the the concern, the the sort of... um, anxiety that goes with having ministered to these people, having brought them the gospel, and now wondering, will they stand fast? Will they split up? Will they blow up the church there in Corinth? What what is their future? And so Paul is not only involved in the ministry in the towns that he's in, but there's also this sense of anticipation as he's waiting for Titus to return and come back from having delivered this letter to say, They've repented and, and, and they have turned to Christ or, or worse than that. And so he is waiting and wondering. Um, we know from 2 Corinthians that he had hoped to meet Titus somewhere on this trip from Ephesus on to maybe up in Troas. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, this would be writing and looking back on this period in, Ephes- in, in Ephesus in Asia. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, The attempt there to to take Paul into custody and to prosecute him to the trip up to Troas and the worry about what is happening in Corinth, Paul is acknowledging later to the Corinthians that he fought a sense of despair at this point, that there is a a, a sense of almost hopelessness that has overwhelmed him from the threats on his life and and the reality that, that, that his life could end, that there were people who want to take it. And and to the, the point that he is constantly forced to leave behind young believers. And, and to wonder what will happen to them when they get the temptations of the world that want to lure them out, when they get all kinds of pressure from false teaching and, and, and suffering, that there would be all of this pressure on them, and he's having to, to continuously leave them behind. And as he says there in Second Corinthians, this was ultimately God's work in me because it forced me to depend on him because I couldn't be there. I couldn't be in the places I wanted to be. I, I had to rely completely on him but his ministry throughout this time what we're looking at here in, in in chapter 20 and what we'll pick up again on next week is in some sense sort of a farewell journey this is paul's knowledge that he is he's getting older he's going to places where he is now more well known and more hated and, and the reality of opposition is everywhere that he goes. And so in each city, there is this growing sense that, that this is starting to wrap up because he also has given us back in chapter 19 his itinerary. He ultimately wants to go back over across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem and then finally make this trip to Rome and, and visit the church that's at Rome. It's no secret at this point that there was Nowhere that he could go without some threats against him. I mean, when he made that move at one point down to the small city of Berea and they followed him even there, it was a reminder that wherever he went in the empire, there were people who had begun to hate him and his time was growing shorter. And so he spends it traveling and preaching and encouraging and writing and mentoring and and, and bringing other believers alongside, doing what verses 1 and 2 that we just read described. He sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said farewell. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. That, that term for much encouragement in the Greek is having encouraged with many words. It, it is Paul's just, he can't say enough to try to strengthen them and to try to give them hope and to try to speak into their lives and be alongside them and encourage them that they belong to Christ and their Savior loves them and they are held by him and he's trying to give them wisdom and comfort and strength. In verses 4 and 5, it speaks of traveling companions that are with him. And the the thing that stands out is these are people, these are guys who are now from all over where Paul has been, from the, the churches in Galatia, to Macedonia, down into the area there where Greece is, Asia, this whole area. He's now got traveling companions who are coming from these various cities and who are with him that he is presumably mentoring along the way, equipping so that they can go back and go into other cities and proclaim the gospel. Over the course of his ministry, if you think from Syria, which is on the eastern side, the yellow landmass on the eastern side where Jerusalem and Judea would be, The northwest corner of Syria there is Antioch, and so that's where he sets out from where the yellow sort of meets the purple, and you take that all the way over to the northwest corner of the map to Philippi and then down to Corinth, that's about a 1,200-mile journey. Just to put that in our own thinking, that's like walking from Lorton to somewhere past Kansas City. If that gives you a sense for... For what's involved in the the sense of labor and journey for these people, that is a a long amount of travel. And Paul's desire, once he got to Corinth, which is in the green there in in Greece at the bottom, or the sort of the center of the the western side there, his desire then is to sail back across the Mediterranean and go to Jerusalem. But what he learns, verse 3 tells us, is there's now a plot against him. No... No better place for people who have plotted against Paul to get him than on a ship when they are out at sea, when piracy is an issue and there's nobody that's going to be recovering. There's no coast guard out there to protect him. And so he now understands that if he boards this ship down from the the coast of Greece, that that they want to kill him on board the ship and dispose of him that way. And so instead he, he travels back. He heads back up through Macedonia and again over to Troas. He got to Philippi, verse 5, tells us then that uh, these went on ahead, these traveling companions from Philippi. They they go on ahead and go on to Troas in verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And this launches us into this week back in Asia in the city of Troas. Let's read verses 7 through 12. This is one of the most memorable scenes in the book of acts is here in these verses on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as paul talked still longer And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They were enormously comforted. Luke, the physician, sort of sets the scene for us in this room, and he just gives us some observations. This is at the end of his week stay, week-long stay in Troas. It's the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. They have worshipped. It is now that night, and they have gathered in this third-story room, this upper room in this house, and they have gathered presumably for a fellowship meal and to take the Lord's Supper together, just as we are going to do in just a short time. This is probably springtime. It's upstairs. And for light, there are these oil-burning lamps that are around the room. Luke makes a point of saying that there were lamps. Luke is, in a sense, helping us to understand. It has been a long day. They have had a meal. Paul has been preaching for a long time. In, insert all your jokes here about long sermons at, at, at this point. Um, they, the, the room has got kind of that smell to it from the oil, from, from the, the flames. It is, it is crowded And this this young man, probably a teenager, based on the description here, when it even says the youth, probably in his teens... Goes to the spot where, where you're likely to get the most fresh air and get away from people, and that's the opening in the wall. It's not a window, per se, because there's no glass to slide up and down. It is just a pure opening in a wall, and he is sitting on the ledge. You can, you can fill in your imagination here. Every mom in this room can think of a teenage boy do- doing exactly this and sitting on that third-story ledge and saying, I got it. It's just, I'm just getting fresh air here. I'm fine. This is, this is no problem at all. The description then says that he sank into a deep sleep. And that verb for sank is, is, is pictures exactly what you and I, we've all experienced it at some time or another. It is that, that time when you are battling exhaustion, when your body is just tired and, and you're having to get somewhere or do something and you're trying to stay awake or you've got a project due in the morning for school or for work and, and you are pushing through, but everything in your body is just saying sleep. Sleep, just close your eyes. And that's where he's at, and and ultimately it says it overcame him till he could resist it no longer. And tragically, he he dozes off and and falls out of this opening and is killed by the fall. What what Paul says in verse 10 about his life being in him does not contradict what, what Luke, as a physician, has told us in the first place, and that is when his body hit the ground, he was dead. When they ran downstairs, what they found at that point was a corpse. But Paul held the boy. And very much like the Old Testament miracles of Elijah and Elijah, as he's, as he's holding the boy, breath reenters him and the heart begins beating again. And Paul is able to say, wait, there's life in him. There's, there's reason for hope here. He is alive. And God has miraculously saved this boy's life. And they return upstairs and they are rejoicing not only is there the gladness of, of the night, I, I, if you think about it, what, what an enormous tragedy this was in the middle of a sweet time of fellowship. They are gathered and they are eating and talking and listening and sharing together and then this tragedy. And now it's, now it's taken up to even another step. They have seen God do this incredible miracle. It says that they stay there then until daybreak and, and they are encouraging one another and savoring all that God is doing. This body of believers at Troas is certainly, at that point, when it says breaking bread, they they certainly had a meal together that night, but the breaking of bread is also a euphemism in the New Testament for the church celebrating the Lord's Supper. It, It is breaking of the bread goes back to what Jesus instituted on the night before his crucifixion when with his disciples as they are thinking about the, the deliverance of the Jews at Passover, and they are thinking back to that time when God rescued the Jews out of slavery in Egypt and how, how God rescued them at the Passover, Jesus is taking and he is transforming that Passover celebration to say, ultimate deliverance is coming. The, the, the lamb who will give himself for the, the sins of the world, the lamb is about, his, his body and blood are about to be shed. And and he is giving them something that even at that point on that night, they don't fully understand, but it is something that he is instituting that we celebrate now looking back to the cross, realizing that what Jesus began that night was a reminder that it is his body and his blood that is given for us. And, and so as we've read in the book of Acts, when Acts 2.42 says when the church was born and they began gathering together, what did they do when they met? They, they listened to the teaching of the apostles. They, they listened to the teaching of God's word. They fellowshiped together. They ate together. They prayed and worshiped together. And it says they, they broke bread. They held communion together. This became common and regular practice for them that when they would gather, they would remember Christ's suffering through that Lord's table. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen is speaking of the cup and it, it shows us that breaking of the bread is not just a, a meal sort of thing, but that it actually ties into communion because it speaks of the cup that represents the blood of Christ and the bread we break as symbolizing the body of Christ. The, the practice of the Lord's Supper that, that Paul goes on and describes in greater detail as he gives commands in 1 Corinthians 11 includes drinking from the cup. And breaking the bread and eating the bread as a way of remembering what Jesus has done, to do this in remembrance of him. Throughout the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is an act of communion. Sometimes we just, we refer to it as communion. The word communion can have a broader meaning than that. It's generally uh, doing something together. We are communing when we're doing, we, we can commune Watching a football game. We can commune sitting around a a, a fire in the sense that we are gathered together and we're sharing stories and we're fellowshipping together. And that's just a a picture of a form of communion. But when we talk about the Lord's Supper and we use that word communion, it really has two two points of emphasis to it. Uh, The one first and foremost is when we are engaged in Lord's Supper, we are communing with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are acknowledging our union with him. As we take the cup and we take the bread, we are doing just like our ancestors in, in Troas did. We are consuming these elements as a picture of the unmistakable bond that we have with Christ. He is in us. We have been saved by virtue of what he has sacrificed for us. And we are symbolically picturing our union with him. That Because of our faith in him, by his atoning sacrifice, we are joined now to the body of Christ. We're partaking of the bread and the cup because we are joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are communing with our Savior in the sense that we are both grieving our own sin that cost so high a price that he gave himself for us and We're celebrating at the same time the atonement that was accomplished through what he did. What a mix, right? Of of acknowledging that it's our sin that brought that cost and yet it is his sacrifice that brings about our atonement. We are communing with our Savior when we take the bread and the cup in that way. That's that's why Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 11. That's why he he chided the Corinthians that you're, you're being careless about this. You're approaching this with this lackadaisical sort of attitude when this is an an honoring of of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you should treat it reverently. And he warned of that. And that's why we always, when we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we always try to take time to just encourage you to just pray where you are and and spend that time before the Lord, asking him to search your heart and the Holy Spirit to convict you if there's areas that, that you just need to do business with in your fellowship with God. But the other aspect of communion that clearly is seen in the New Testament that the Lord's Supper entails, is that of what we do together. Every instance in the New Testament where we see the the bread being broken, it's not somebody sitting privately on their own. It is the corporate body. It is the body that has come together. And they are breaking bread together. Just like verse 7 says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, it was purposeful that the community came to do this and to celebrate communion to celebrate the Lord's supper as a body throughout the the New Testament that's the description in terms of the breaking of the bread in fact one of Paul's most severe words against the sin at Corinth there was immorality there was, there was all sorts of scrapping with one another, but when he gets to chapter um, 11, he's severe with them in particular about their handling of the Lord's Supper. Because they've come together to not only have the Lord's Supper, but have a fellowship meal together. And in that instance, some are getting food and some are being left out in the cold and aren't getting anything. And, and, and Paul says, this is wrong you're dividing into these factions for whatever, whatever they were doing at that point, they are splitting up. And he says in First Corinthians eleven twenty, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you are eating. Don't, don't take this to be a communion service that you all are, have gathered for when you've got people that you've left outside and, 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 and in some way separated from. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about because the, the very point is, we come to the Lord's Supper as a community because we come in mutual recognition that none of us comes on any different ground than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all approach the table recognizing that we are sinners who deserve eternal judgment of God and punishment for that. And it is only by God's grace that you or I come to that table. It is only by his, his welcoming and his work on the cross, his grace that we are able to then embrace together, to to come not only in right relationship with God, but in right fellowship with each other. As, as, As shocking as it may be to our senses these days, there is a reason that the church historically, in the practice of the Lord's Supper, took a loaf of bread and broke from that loaf and passed it around and broke the pieces. Again, I understand in 2021 that for reasons beyond us, that sort of makes us a little squeamish. But the reality is that that was to demonstrate that you are a corporate community joined to one body, one savior. And and you are taking of that same bread together. It's a visible reminder of how we are joined. Our our individual, prepackaged, gluten-free, wafers back there are healthy. But I would submit to you that even though we're trying our best to accommodate the season that we are in, this just means we need to be that much more intentional in thinking about what it is to do this as a community. Communion is not meant to be an individual thing. It's it's individual in the sense that, yes, you and I are doing business before the Lord, and and I individually am thanking God for his grace and his blood poured out for my soul and saving me. But he has also mandated it within the context of a group of believers so that I see, I I belong together with this body, and we all come on the same footing. So we come to the Lord's table arm in arm, sharing as, as family we're going to do that this morning. We're going to pause. I, I, I still want to, just so you, you don't wonder later, I'm going to come back, and I just want to look very briefly at verses 13 to 16. So I want to come back to that. But we're going to pause here, and we're going to do that. We're going to remember and give thanks for what Jesus Christ has done through the Lord's Supper. We're, we're going to do as we always do and, and, and honor him in that way and, and individually coming reverently before him and thanking him for salvation. Um. Here's some instructions as to how we're going to do that in here. You, you saw the tables when you came in. There's two tables. Take your time. Um, in a moment, Kevin's going to come up and he's going to play. No need to rush. I'm going to ask that ideally somebody from each family would go back and gather the elements for the, the family, bring them back, hold on to them, spend some time in prayer. Um, parents, as we always say, this is between you and your kids and their knowledge of the gospel and their understanding of what is happening in Lord's Supper. So as you, you work that out with them and where they are in terms of trusting in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to the table. There's no membership or other expectation. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior, you believe that he died for your sins and that he rose again, and you have confessed that and believe in him, then we invite you to take part in communion, and to go up and, and take the, one of the little packets. Don't need to, to all line up. You know the drill. You've been doing this for the last year everywhere you go, right? Just go up as, as you have an opportunity. We'll take three or four minutes while, while Kevin plays. Um, enjoy that time in prayer. But here's the other application I guess I'll give you this morning. As in particular, as we take the bread and the cup, we'll, we'll drink and we'll eat together. So just hold it and then we'll do that together. Um, but here's the other application I would give you I, I am longing, as I know all of you are, for that day when we feel a little more like Troas in here and we're a little bit more elbow to elbow and, and maybe a little warm and even a little uncomfortable. Never thought that that might feel all that good, but, but I think it will when that day comes. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do if you've been coming to Grace for any length of time. You, you know brothers and sisters in Christ who for health reasons, who are compromised in, in, in some reason or for, for age reasons are, are not able to be with us. Would you pray? Would you just spend that time as you've gotten your cup and you've done some business yourself with the Lord, would you also take that opportunity to just give thanks and pray for those brothers and sisters? We may not be able to encourage them right in this moment face-to-face, but you can do so through your praying. And so think about your brothers and sisters who you're looking around going, ah, they're not here this morning, and so I'm going to pray for them in some way. All right, would you do that? So take your time. Kevin's going to come up and play, and then I'll come back up in a few minutes, and we'll share together. Just whenever you're ready, you can go back and grab your, the elements there. Reading from 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Let's pray for just a moment before we take the cup. Lord Jesus, we come and as you instructed your disciples in the giving of thanks, We realize that all that we have is from the kindness and mercy of your hand, but that which we have supremely greater than all else is life and forgiveness and hope that you have given us through the giving of your body and your blood. And so we have come to to express our gratitude, to remember that it is in the agony of your suffering you're bearing the wrath of your father that our sin was being punished for what it deserved. We thank you for bearing that in our place. We thank you for giving to us life. and We thank you for the community in which you've placed us. That we look back on our ancestors in Troas and here to our Brothers and sisters alongside and those who are online with us and those who are at the first service. And we are we are so grateful for how you have placed us within a body of believers where we would have fellowship and communion together. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. The form and the manner are different. (laughs) We're not having the exact same experience as our ancestors in Troas, but we are communing with our Savior. We are sharing in the acknowledgement of his body and his blood, and we are communing together with brethren, our saints who've gone before, and those who are with us, confessing just like them that we are sinners in need of a Savior who gave himself as a ransom for us. Let's just take a moment. I just want to look at the last few verses in this section, and it's more than, more than just a travel itinerary. You'll see that, I hope, in just a second. Verse 13 But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Semos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. There's just one more thing I just want you to see in this passage, because I think it's a little bit of a, a, a curiosity, at least, in verse 13. Is that this that We're getting the... The travel itinerary. The, the ship that started in Troas was going down to Ephesus and stopping in port each night and overnighting in the port and then leaving the next day. And so he sort of runs through the cities, the port cities down along the Aegean, ultimately settling at Miletus. And, and we'll look next week at Paul being there and calling the Ephesian elders to be with him. But what's interesting is is they've had this all night time together. They have they have worshipped together, they have had communion together, they have prayed together, they have gone till daybreak. And at daybreak, Paul's traveling companions say, okay, it's, it's time to get on the boat, and we're headed down to the, the next city, which is Assos around the Cape, and then down to this next city. And Paul does not get on board. It said, instead, it says he intended to travel by land which is very interesting. It's about a 20-mile journey, certainly doable in a a day's walk. Not the easiest of terrain, but nonetheless, certainly something he could do and be there for that night and be ready to go the next morning to to board the ship. But what Scripture doesn't tell us is why, and and we don't know, because Luke has not given us a reason that all of the companions get on board and they intend for Paul, and Paul says, No, I'm I'm going by land. I'm going to walk instead. So I, I say all this because I'm speculating at this point. Commentators are are speculating at this point, and and, and I want that to be clear. The text does not tell us why, but there's several possibilities, perhaps, of of why Paul does this. Perhaps the ship is leaving Troas at a set time, and like any of us who have ever been late for some kind of travel arrangements, who have ever known that the flight was leaving at a certain time and realized we were not going to make that, perhaps Paul says, I'm I've got business here to attend to. I've got this Eutychus and his family and all that has happened and, and I'll get you. I'm just not ready to leave right now. And so he stays on. It's possible. He knows again he can He can catch the ship the next day in the next city. It's possible that Paul wants some time, some time away from, from all of the activities. He's about to board a ship for a long journey across the Mediterranean. There will not be... Um, time alone in a nice stateroom somewhere, it's going to be crowded and busy, and this journey is going to be hard, and perhaps it's just time, much as Jesus does, gets away and just wants to spend time communing with God. The last option I I would suggest to you is that either there were believers in Troas or others from that area in Asia who, who Paul just wants to spend another day with. And Paul is willing to walk it to the next city because it gives him an opportunity to walk alongside more people and to strengthen and to teach and to encourage. Don't know if it's one of those or if it's none of the above and there's something here that someday when we get to heaven, we'll be able to say, hey, that deal in Acts 20, why did you walk that day? Um, But I'll offer you this. two, Two loosely held potential applications that I'll give you in closing this morning based on those loosely held possible interpretations there. The one is, you and I need time alone with the Lord. It is good and necessary as believers to make time to be alone and to be in God's Word and to commune with Him and to hear from Him from Scripture and to pray to Him and to speak to Him. You and I know what busyness and activity and and, and being around people all the time. There's, there's something invigorating and yet there's something needful about doing just like Paul's Savior and ours would do, and from time to time that is to get away and find time to pray, and just to be alone. So Maybe that's a potential for you. Maybe that's an area where you're struggling in and, and, and need to ask some brother or sister to help with the kids or somebody to, to hold you accountable in some way or to encourage you in some way so that you will just set some time aside, even this week, to just be alone with the Lord and to be in his word, to speak to him in prayer. Second, loosely held application of this. So we also need time to commune with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If that's what Paul was doing, is walking and talking with believers from Troas, he's certainly doing exactly like he knew his Savior did. And that is often he walked with his disciples or walked with townspeople and, and used that opportunity to encourage them and to teach them and to strengthen them and to come alongside of them. And we, we need to make that time. So here's the, here's the very hands on application I'll give you. As unreliable as weather forecasts can be, I'll, I've at least looked ahead and they're saying some days of sunshine. Some warm days, maybe even this week. So, if you can, if you can find time in one of those nicer days, I'm gonna challenge you as I'm challenging myself to pick an hour somewhere in one of those days and schedule some time to come alongside and encourage someone. Maybe it's, how about if I come by and we just walk through your neighborhood? Or how about if I come by and I'll, I'll stand out in front of your front steps and I'll I'll stand away and I'll keep my mask on, whatever it takes. I just want to stand there and I just want to encourage you. Because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are longing, longing for fellowship. For whatever reasons, they're they're struggling right now. And and, and I want to encourage us as a body of believers that we be those who are willing to to change the schedule and not get on the ship as Paul did and say, I'm going to do this instead. God's got it. It'll all work out. Um, Take some time, change up plans maybe, be intentional about it, and look for an opportunity this week to to grab someone and, and just see them. The journey of the Christian life is long, can be hard, challenging, filled with temptations and trials, and all of the things that seek to keep us from loving God and loving neighbor as self. And so if we're going to do those things, it will be because we're we're being intentional. We're, we're seeking God's grace and strength to do them, but also because we're, we're willing to make that change of plans, if need be, so that we might love our neighbor in this way. All right, let's pray together. Father, you are so good to give to us in scripture these descriptions of travel and uh, just hardships along the way and, and obstacles that come up to remind us again and again that Ultimately, by your sovereign grace, Paul got to Jerusalem and he got to Rome and may not have been in the, the same way that he had hoped, in the same manner that he had anticipated, but in your sovereign working in all of these things, you, you accomplished the planting of churches in all of these cities that so desperately needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for reminding us again this morning of the, the bond that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ who have have come to that same place by your grace of finding forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we commune together in your name, striving to to honor you. I pray for our body of believers here in Lorton, that you would help us as we try to navigate this season, that we earnestly pray for an end to. Lord, there are people here who whose jobs, whose lives, whose schooling, whose time with family have all been affected sometimes tremendously by by what's happening these days. And Father, we we are pleading that you would bring this to an end, that you would bring healing, that you would strengthen your people, and that your church would be a light shining in the darkness. Help us even this week, this family of Grace Bible Church, to, to minister to our brothers and sisters in whatever ways we can. To take stock of the things that we've seen in Scripture, of speaking much encouragement into the lives of one another. Help us to do that, to be those encouragers who come alongside of one another. Because we, we are joined together in Christ. Lord Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.